morning. My name is Tim Burden. Uh, for those who are maybe visiting or who I haven't met, um, someone mentioned to me uh, last week, I, I forget often uh, to introduce myself, and um, so we want to try to get better about doing that. Um, if you turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 5, we're going to be looking at the Gospel of Mark chapter 5. Um, we're going to look at verse, verses 21 through the end of the chapter. Um, and while you're turning there, I, uh, I ask a quick question. I don't know if you uh, can think of a time that you were desperate for something. Desperate. I don't know if maybe um, you just finished a, a run or a workout and you were just desperate for a drink of water. Um, maybe it was um, you've just had just kind of this sense of crushing loneliness and were desperate for a friend to call you on the phone or even better to stop by. And just hang out. What we have here, Mark shows us a scene um, in Jesus' ministry uh, where some people were desperate to get to him. They were desperate not necessarily just for a thing, but for a person, for the person of Jesus. So let me read for us. Um, I'm going to read, and, uh, and then we'll jump right in, starting in verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him. And he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had, a, who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up. Um, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him, and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking 
for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would open our ears and soften our hearts, um, that you would move by your spirit to increase our faith, our desperation for you, our trust in you. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I'm going to uh, preach, and I need you to listen really quickly. So this is like an old preacher joke. You know, I put the, the responsibility on you for how long the sermon takes. Um, I'm kidding. Um, but what we have here is, is, is a story of Jesus' encounter with people who are very weak, very um, insignificant by the standards of their culture. Um, and even though these two, um, these two people are very different, you have an older woman and, and a younger girl, they're actually, Mark wants us to see, their stories are actually very similar and kind of run on parallel tracks at the same time. Um, both of them seem to be desperately beyond all help. One is 12 years old, the 12-year-old girl, and another one has been sick with this flow of blood for 12 years. This is number 12. Um, both in verses 34 and then 35, uh, both of them are called daughter. Uh, both of them, obviously, are female. Um, in the case of the older woman, she would have been shunned. She was basically at the bottom of the pecking order in that culture. And it would have been the same for a 12-year-old child. Um, this was a time when people didn't necessarily have the, the sentimental feelings about children that we just kind of take for granted, uh, maybe in our culture. That came later in kind of the Romantic period and the Victorian era, uh, kind, of, kind of molding our culture's view toward children. Um, children at that time were certainly loved. They were certainly cherished um, by their parents. But they were also seen as, as just inherently immature and foolish and dependent and weak and needy. Um, children were expected to be seen and not heard. So you have this girl at the bottom of the pecking order, and you have a woman um, who's obviously also marginalized um, in that culture, a time when there weren't a whole lot of rights, as we would call them, um, for women. This woman, uh, this older woman, says she had been suffering with this problem for 12 years. Um, She would have had an especially difficult life. Um, not only because of her illness, not only because of just physically feeling weak and ill for these 12 years, but also because the text tells us, Mark says, she had been reduced to poverty. She had spent everything she had after chasing after one cure after another, one doctor after another, and nobody could help her. In fact, they made things worse. And on top of that, she is perpetually unclean. That meant she couldn't go in with the other women into the outer court to worship uh, uh, at the temple or in the synagogue. She would have been required because she was unclean, because of this continuous flow of blood. Wherever she went, she was required to let people know that she was unclean. If she accidentally touched another person, then that person was also considered unclean until evening when they could go and cleanse themselves and be declared clean again by the priest. And the same would go for any object that she touched. It was considered unclean. This was her life. It was hard and it was miserable. And so against this backdrop, I want you to look with me in these next few minutes at Jesus' remarkable selfless love in action when he comes across these 
two, um, these two people who in some ways are very different, but also are very similar at the bottom of the pecking order. Look at this remarkable love, this Jesus who gladly welcomed children and blessed them, even when his disciples were trying to shoo them away because kids aren't supposed to be getting in the way of the grown-ups. This Jesus who spoke freely with women uh, and openly in a time when that was scandalous in the culture for a single man to be seen in public speaking with a woman who is not his wife. And he did this repeatedly in many other stories you may know about in the Bible. Uh, Many women were close followers of Jesus. And in fact, Jesus chose women to be the very first eyewitnesses um, of his resurrection. But what I want us to see is Jesus' selfless love and action in three ways here. His compassion, in his timing, in his power. And then after we see those three ways, we'll wrap up by looking at, at the response of faith. But first, first look at his, his selfless love and action and his compassion. You can picture the scene, right? It's, and Mark is a really great, vivid writer. And so you, you, there are a lot of action words in there. And you can get an image in your mind of the scene. The crowd is gathered around beside the Sea of Galilee around Jesus. And this guy, Jairus, a leader in the synagogue, he works his way, muscles his way through the crowd up to Jesus. And he falls down and begs him. He's like, Jesus, you know, you don't, you don't know me, but I need you to come right now and heal my daughter. If you think for just a second, okay, this crowd is gathered around. We don't know if Jesus had been healing or teaching or some combination of the, of the two. But Jesus didn't say, um, you know, I'm kind of in the middle of something here and gestures broadly to the crowd thronging around him. Um, Jesus says, yeah, okay, drops everything. He says, let's go. And he follows him. And you can imagine the scene as Jesus is maybe speed walking to keep up with this dad who's desperate to save his daughter's life. And they're weaving in and out of the streets and the alleys. And they're jostling with a crowd who is also trailing along and crowding around to see what's going on. And Jesus' disciples are also walking to kind of keep up with what's going on as everyone presses in together. And, and as he's going, from the back of that moving crowd comes this woman jostling around. And she moves from the back because that's where she's always been told that's where she belongs. She comes in from behind. But she's determined that she absolutely has to get to Jesus to at least touch him. She's learned over the years, of course, she belongs out on the margins, out behind, away from the crowd, uh, because she's unclean. Um, People would be angry with her if they knew what was going on with her, that she was touching them. But she reaches out and she touches Jesus, and instantly she's aware that she's been healed. And Jesus is aware of what happened, too. He stops dead in his tracks and says, you know, who touched my garments? And it's, it's funny, the disciples are like... All right, Jesus, first of all, we're in a crowd. Now we're following this guy. You know, they're trying to follow along. They're trying to understand this, this leader, this man who doesn't seem to do things the way a normal person would do them. Um, and, now, and now he's, he's been crowded by all these people, but he knows that the power has gone out of him. And so the woman, she realizes the game is up, right? She realizes she's been called out. And I love that in verse 33, it says, But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. That's interesting. Why why fear and trembling? Um, Certainly it would have been awe 
at Jesus' power that just healed her instantly like that. But also knowing that she had bumped into a lot of people to get to Jesus. And now Jesus knew that he had touched her too. She had technically made all these other people unclean. That's not a way to make friends. Um, And yet look at Jesus' compassion. How he, he not only heals her, but he takes time to stop, to talk with her, to have a conversation with her, and to listen. That brings us to a second aspect of Jesus' selfless love in action here, his timing, the completely counterintuitive way that Jesus keeps to a schedule. His sense of timing doesn't really make a lot of sense. It doesn't really jive with our sense of timing. His priorities don't often seem to be our priorities. Jesus seems to just allow himself to be pulled to and fro. Um, And and it's not being pulled by the people who are the strongest and the loudest and the most important and the most influential. He allows himself to be pulled around by the weakest and the most vulnerable. He's drawn almost like a magnet, isn't he? He's drawn away from the fame of the crowds and toward the low places, toward the shy places, toward the hurting people, to one-on-one conversations in private. And he doesn't seem to stick to a schedule very well, which seems to have been frustrating to his disciples. So here he's been rushing to heal a dying girl, and every second counts, right? This girl is at the brink of death. I mean, he left what he was doing. They're rushing to go to this house, following this this father. And, I mean, if that had been me, if I had been the father, Jarius, and my daughter, Myra, had been who was sick, I would be like, Jesus, what are you doing? Come on. Look, okay, I get it. Yeah, she's got a problem. She's apparently had this problem for 12 years. I think she can wait a few more minutes, right? This doesn't make sense. Why would you stop and spend time? We've got a little girl. Her whole life is ahead of her. Why would we put her on hold when she's hanging and her life is hanging in the balance and talk to this older woman who presumably her best years are, are already behind her? Yet Jesus knows what he's doing. We, we know how the story ends, even though they didn't at the time. Jesus knows that a miracle even greater than healing the sick child is going to happen. He's going to have to raise her to life. He knows what he's doing, even though he doesn't usually tell us at the time. But you see, sometimes Jesus loves us too much to just give us exactly what we want when we want it, doesn't he? He wants to display his glory. He wants to give us a deeper, a greater joy than we would than would have ever happened if we had just done things on our terms and gotten him to to answer the things that we wanted him to do on our timetable. Jesus' timing is almost never our timing, but it is always perfect. And so we see his compassion, uh, we see his, his perfect timing at work, we also see his absolutely effortless power at work. Look at how Jesus loves in using his power. The woman reaches out through the throng and touches him, right? She believes Jesus is who he said he is, that he can do what he says he can do, that he has power to heal. And that's exactly what happened. Jesus didn't have to, he didn't have to stop and perform some elaborate ritual. He didn't have to put her on a special program and kind of check in with her week in and week out until slowly she's made better. Jesus' power is so alive and so present 
uh, is just such a basic part of his nature as God in the flesh, the one who spoke the world into existence. His power to heal is so electric that she only had to brush the edge of his garment. And this whole, like, dozen years-long nightmare of illness and ostracism is over in a flash like that. And we also see his, his effortless power to heal as the story goes on, right? Some people come running to meet Jarius and they say, look, it's okay, just stop, stop. Like, let, let Jesus go back to do what he's doing. Um, I hate to tell you this, but she's, she's already died. Um, there's no point in, in bothering Jesus anymore. And so Jesus, again, very weirdly, seems undeterred. He's like, no, let's, let's keep going. Um, in the face of this father's despair and his fear, Jesus tells him, he says, do not fear, only believe. And so he gets there, he holds off, holds off the crowd and even most of his disciples, and he took his, his trusted inner ring, his, his three guys, Peter, James, and John. He says, all right, you guys, y'all stay. You guys, Peter, James, and John, come with me. They get to the house the funeral procession of the morning has already happened. Um, this was normal uh, process in a time before, um, you know, modern morticians. Um, bodies were buried quickly, usually within 24 hours, uh, especially in the Mediterranean heat and that climate. Um, people would hire mourners and flute players. There's a, uh, a text uh, around the same time that would say even the poorest person would hire no less than two flute players and a woman to mourn. So you'd have professional people who would come and cry out loud and, and make a commotion. This was part of the mourning process. So he gets there, and all this has just started to get going. And he says, why all the commotion? You know, she's just sleeping. And, of course, they laugh at him. You know, they're like, we're not idiots. We, we can tell the difference between a sleeping child and a dead child. But Jesus doesn't seem to be very bothered by being laughed at either, which I have to say, like, to me is really remarkable. Um, I, I can have thin skin sometimes. But Jesus, again, he doesn't meet our expectations. Jesus ignores their derision. He takes his three closest disciples, takes the parents too, pushes everyone else out. Jesus doesn't need a crowd. He doesn't seem to seek out fame. In fact, he seems to run the other way from fame. Instead, he wants them to have some privacy so he's, there's no distraction. He doesn't need a big crowd of gawkers. And he very tenderly takes this girl's hand in his own hand. And you see his tenderness, his compassion, but also his, again, this, this effortless power. Verse 41, taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. Now, that, uh, Mark gives us the Aramaic uh, phrase there, Talitha kumi, which means um, literally like little lamb or little lady is a diminutive term. It was a term of endearment that you would use for, for a child. And Jesus, when he says, um, I say to you, arise, he doesn't use the word for be resurrected, be raised up from the dead. He simply uses the, the normal everyday word for get up. Just get up. It's something that a parent would tell their kids in the morning. And so as someone else put it, um, another pastor, Tim Keller, uh, puts it so well. He says, a modern translation that really captures what Jesus said would be closer to, honey, it's time to get up. That's it. Time to get up. 
And now Jesus had said she was only sleeping, but of course he knew, and everyone else knew, she was really dead. But Jesus shows that his incredible power is such that raising a 12-year-old girl from death to life is no harder than raising a little girl from her sleep. And she gets up. And Jesus, again, still tender, still aware of exactly what she needs. He tells her parents, he's like, yeah, she's probably hungry. You might want to give her something to eat. Who is this man? Right? He so perfectly combines startling power with gentleness and tenderness. He combines compassion with a willingness to be delayed, to zero in one at a time on one real person with a very real, unique problem at a time. And so the question for us then is how do we respond to someone who loves like this, who loves so selflessly, who loves with this kind of compassion for the weak and lowly, the people who are in no position to do anything for him in return. This person who has such a selfless view of his own time, such a countercultural way of keeping a schedule, almost looking for chances to get pulled off course for the sake of others. This person who wields such astonishing power and yet never uses it for his own benefit. How do we respond when we're confronted with this Jesus? We see the answer again in Mark's account. Um, You could look in verse 34. Um, This woman suffered for 12 years with this, this long problem. She comes to him with faith. Jesus says to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. It's the response of faith, isn't it? It's the response of faith that made the difference. So when we take the time to be honest with ourselves, we realize you know, maybe you're not just a little unhappy, maybe not just a little unhealthy, but you have to be honest and realize that you're desperately dying. In fact, you're as good as dead on your own. When you finally face the facts, that sense of of humble desperation takes hold. And that's what leads us to reach out in faith and take hold of the only one who is life himself. You see, it's not, it's not that our faith in and of itself has any kind of magical power to make things happen, to make a difference. We don't, we don't force God to act or to do anything, to bless because of our faith. Um, we don't have the power to manipulate God. But our faith, which is itself a, a gift from God by his grace, but that faith is what we call a means by which we reach out and grab hold of Jesus, the object of our faith. And that's the response that Jesus um, asked of Jairus, the father too. In verse 36, a couple verses later, he says, do not fear, only believe. Believe, and another word for have faith, trust. Um, what do we mean by faith? That's something we talk about a lot, and uh, we hear it a lot in the Bible, we talk about it a lot in church. Faith is not... Um, Faith is not just shutting your brain off and believing something in spite of evidence or even in the face of contrary evidence. Um, that seems to be the way our culture thinks that we think faith is. Um, but that's actually not what biblical faith is. Faith is simply believing, trusting that Jesus is who he said he is. 
When Jesus said in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father, no one gets to God, Jesus said, except through me. We go to him. So what does a response of faith look like in real life? It's, it's the unclean woman pushing through the crowd, desperate to get to Jesus. It, it is a desperation. It's focused on hope, on the only one in the crowd who matters, on Jesus himself. As we close, I just want to um, encourage you with this. Don't let obstacles get in your way. Um, and yes, there are obstacles. There are a lot of obstacles. It may not be a physical crowd. But for many of us, um, it's shame and guilt. Like Adam and Eve, we want to run the other way when we hear God coming. We want to go and hide, don't we? And yet he's out there calling us to come out and to come to him. Don't let obstacles stop you. Maybe the obstacles that are, are, are keeping you from him are, are just doubts. You're not really sure that, that all of this is even true. Um, maybe you have some, some specific questions, some doubts of how could the, the um, God of the Bible really exist? How could Jesus be who he said he is if there's so much pain and suffering um, in the world? Um, the fans are looking to go to Indonesia. And we know um, the latest report is uh, at least 800, if not more people, have been killed in the recent earthquake and tsunami over in that part of the world. How do, we, how do we even wrap our heads around that? How could a good God allow things like that to happen? Those are real legitimate questions, and maybe that's a doubt that you struggle with. I'm not going to take the time to answer all that now, but I'd love to, to talk through that with you. Um, but don't let doubts be an obstacle to stop you. There are answers. There are really great resources. Um, your eternal life is worth maybe reading a book or two to do a little bit of homework and study. Um, maybe, maybe the obstacle is you're just worried about whether others will think about your reputation um, and coming to Jesus. Maybe it's just a hard-nosed determination not to give up control of your life. But whatever the obstacle is, I simply want to encourage you, push through to Jesus. This goes not just for unbelievers, but believers as well. Those of us, maybe you've known Jesus as long as you can remember. But we still let those things keep us from him. So I just want to say, cultivate your sense of desperate need for Jesus. Do what it takes to push other things to a position of secondary importance, to focus your gaze on him. And don't be worried about where he might lead you when you get to him. In fact, he'll probably take you outside your comfort zone, just like he did this woman and having her come out of the shadows and, and confess her faith in him in front of everybody publicly. But the point is, he is not far off from you. He's right here, life in the flesh. And he's calling you to lean hard on him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are life itself. Where else can we go, Lord? You alone have the words of life. Um, we pray that you would create in each one of us a deep desperation for you. And then help us to run to you and find that deepest satisfaction uh, that can only be found in you. We thank you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.